When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. My guest this week is the writer and teacher Laura Worrell. We talk about her novel, Sweet Soft Plenty Rhythm, a novel that took her 20 years to write. It brings to life the trumpet player Circus Palmer and the cast of passionate and very willful women in his orbit. The novel is steeped in jazz, and as the title suggests, the rhythms of the music are embedded in the structure and tone of the book. For me, each character felt like they were their own riff that kind of would reverberate and return to the story again and again. In 2019, Laura wrote an essay that went viral for Huffington Post. The title was, I gave up on love and it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Now, I obviously had to ask Laura all about this, this essay she wrote and also how that really significant decision changed her life. I hope you love this conversation with Laura and I. Welcome, Laura. Thank you so much. I am absolutely thrilled to be here. I agree with you. It's wonderful to be out in Los Angeles. I got to drive across the city to get here. So I'm thrilled to be talking to you about the book in person. It's great. Tell me about the journey to get here. You also wrote an exceptional essay in in the Los Angeles Review of Books. Sorry to make the connection between LA traffic and your life and frustrations, <laughs> but yeah, talk us through how how you got here. Sure. Well, let me further that metaphor a little bit. I think it's interesting because the time the timing of our meeting was perfect because I got to drive across the city and enjoy it, right? So usually the traffic is a nightmare and you're tangled up in it, but I got to see new discoveries. There's this hotel that I've never seen before, some old Hollywood hotel. So if we're going to use that metaphor, I imagine that, well, it's about timing, right? And in some ways I feel there are two ways to look at my journey as a writer. Writing While Black, which was, as you said, published in the Los Angeles Review of Books, was one piece of it. I do feel, unfortunately, that race factors into a lot of career trajectories for creatives. It can be more challenging because you know, industries may not be as diversified or they may not be as comfortable with working with creatives of color or knowing how to position those stories even when they are excited about them. So I do feel like there were challenges that were incredibly difficult, incredibly painful. It felt liberating, but also absolutely terrifying to write that essay. 
but I felt like I needed to do it for writers in marginalized communities, for artists in, in marginalized communities to finally, not finally, I mean, other people have talked about it, but to kind of pull the veil back or the curtain back and say, these are some of the challenges we face and it's agonizing and it would be wonderful if, if they were addressed. But I think the other piece of it that isn't related to to cultural dynamics is simply that it took a while to master my voice. I have a voice, I have a style, I have an appreciation for language that I believe has always been kind of hard for me to really gain control over. And I think as a writer or a creative person in general, that's part of the work, right? You've you've been given this desire to do creative work. Maybe you've been given gifts and you've got to figure out how to use them in a way that it's not only fulfilling for you, but that other people can access your your work and your ideas and be touched by what you're trying to share. So that's, I guess, in the abstract, that was the journey. But I like to talk about the practicalities of it. I wrote my first book or finished my first book out of college and tried to get it published. It was terrible, <laughs> but I tried. But you did it. Yeah. And I wrote four other books before this book came out. So over the course of 25 years, countless rejections. I don't know how many agents I've queried over the last 25 years. I've totally lost count. I couldn't even imagine trying to put that number together. It took me two years to finally get the agent for this book, 50 query letters to agent. And I say that not to, you know, signal the violins, cue the violins, but just to push the point that for some people, yeah, it's harder, but don't give up, right? The, the dream, the goal is attainable. And for some people, yeah, it's going to take you a little bit longer, but you've got to love the work. So I say that with honesty. I want to be frank about how challenging it was because I feel like for a lot of writers, we don't hear those stories. We more often hear like, I'm 25. It's my first book. So here's the other story. Yeah. And also there was a really interesting New York Times article where Lisa Lucas talked about your book. She's just a kind of a, a goddess in the yeah, world of is. publishing. Superstar. Your book has so many layers to it, and it is about a jazz musician, Circus Palmer, mm -hmm. and I'll have you talk about him so much more than me. You know, <laughs> it's centered around him, but really it's about the women in his life that come in and out of his life yes. and that reverberate around him. When did he first come to you as a character? And I'm kind of reticent to talk about the man first mm -hmm. because I Coco is my love yes. in the book and Maggie. Yes. But I think why center the book around him and his mm -hmm. life, but then how, you know, it was obviously incredibly important for you to make these women sing in mm -hmm. the book. Mm-hmm. First, I just want to say that I love the idea of the women reverberating around him. Can I borrow that? Can I use that? Hey, <laughs> That's great. So Circus came to me because I was in a relationship with a musician, and it was similar to the relationships that the women have with him in this book. I wanted more out of the relationship that I was getting. There was a lot of mystery around his life because he wasn't as involved with me as I wanted him to be. And at the same time, I was actually reading a book about a womanizer, a playboy. 
And I just had this moment of feeling like as interesting as these characters are, as common as their stories are, I feel like we've heard a lot about them. And I'm definitely interested in continuing to know about them. But I'd like to also hear about the women. Um, very often I think when women are um, – very often I think when women are – Featured in the stories of of men, particularly men like this, they are serving his journey. They're serving his hopeful, you know, evolution, and ignoring the fact that these women have their own stories. They have lives going on. I say this a lot as a writer, and I assume a lot of writers are like this. We're kind of living our lives in two realities. One is reality, and the other is as writers. So always sort of observing and, and judging and interpreting our lives and, and creating narratives out of them. And so I thought about the fact that this person I was involved with doesn't know me. He doesn't know what's going on in my life. He doesn't know my challenges, what's happening in my family, what's happening in my world as he's kind of walking in and out of it. And I felt like there are really interesting stories there. The women that these men are involved with have lives and challenges and goals and traumas just like the men do, and we never hear about them. And so I wanted to write that book where we turn the camera and we look at the women and we see what's happening in their lives. We see what their concerns are and who they are as full-fledged, three-dimensional human beings. Well, and one of these women who is the daughter of Circus, so not one of the his lovers or a wife, ex-wife. And as I mentioned, I love her. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and we follow her through the book through a sexual awakening, but also a coming of age to a certain point, an understanding. There's a very powerful scene. You know, she has a crush on a teacher, mm -hmm. which I think if we all cast back Mm -hmm. I myself at our all-girls school had a Mr. Plunkett. Ah, yes. He was the drama teacher. Okay. And yeah. everyone kind of the energy yeah. coming towards that poor man. Yes. <laughs> oh, true, if you could yeah. bottle that, I mean, we could <laughs> yeah. go to the moon. Yeah, that's um, hilarious to think about, but you're absolutely right. Yeah. But I'd love to hear more about how how precious and how careful you had to be when writing about a, a teenager mm -hmm. and also how you kind of push those limits. Sometimes she, I felt that she was putting herself in a very precarious, dangerous position and then you'd pull back and I'd be so relieved mm -hmm. that actually she was kind of flexing her power and in control. And I think it'll make everyone who reads your book cast back to their own adolescence mm -hmm. of when we put ourselves in those situations. And only as adults we look back and go, oh, we got out scot-free. Yes. Whew. Yeah. Talk about Coco and sure. how important she is. It's funny because throughout my journey with this book, whether it's the talking to editors about it who are interested or readers, it's either Team Coco or Team Maggie. Everybody loves those characters. And interestingly, Coco was one of the first characters to emerge. Originally, I was just going to write about the women in his life, lovers, and as you said, Pia, his ex-wife. And then something happened. I don't think this is a spoiler. It's something that happens later in the book, but the Boston Marathon bombing happened and I was living in Boston. And there were girls who were getting crushes on the 
younger bomber and in in real life. Yeah. And so I thought, oh my gosh, Circus has a daughter. And originally I was just going to write sort of one chapter about a daughter, but she just is so strong and so powerful a character and force. And her story, her trajectory was so interesting to me that she she's a recurring character. And I agree with you that, and there are two ways to sort of look at it. There's the fact of adolescence, particularly that age with girls. She's about 14 years old, where I remember I was totally like this, where I'm raging with hormones and I'm trying to figure out who I am. I also, ours was Mr. Jarvie in middle school. He was the gym teacher. But yeah, there was always the crush, right, in school. But I think very often kids that age, and I think especially girls, do get themselves into precarious situations because they're trying to figure out who they are. And there's this interesting sort of energy that's really forceful, I think, in girls of that age. And they're either, you know, it seems going to move forward in their lives and and retain that sort of strength and sense of purpose and selfhood, or unfortunately, sometimes lose it. And I think one of the things that's interesting about Coco is not only that, yes, I, I bring her up to the edge, right? She's at the precipice in every chapter she features in. And part of that is, to me, the nature of fiction. You can't be nice to your characters. You can't take care of them and coddle them because that's not interesting for fiction. And there are many times where I kind of teared up and silently apologized. I'm sorry, Coco, but you're in a novel. <laughs> so I've got to, you know, I, I, can't, I can't be nice to you all the time. But there's also the fact that as girls are trying to figure out who they are. They're going to get themselves into some dangerous and risky situations. But that's part of the process. Well, I think for every woman, there's a moment in our lives where we decide enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Well, I say that. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, sometimes it's harder to stick to that resolve right. in terms of relationships or we can fall in love with someone mm -hmm. and then things aren't what they seem. Right. Which is so heart-wrenching. Mm -hmm. I want to pivot quickly to another essay you wrote that mm -hmm. I was just riveted by mm -hmm. in the Huffington Post mm -hmm. yes. about deciding to give up on love mm -hmm. and the freedom yeah. uh, <laughs> that came with that. It, it's such an incredible essay and we'll link to it, but something that in it that I just loved was going to a party. Mm -hmm. All those times you would go out to, you know, someone else's wedding, mm -hmm. a party with an intention, like maybe tonight I'll meet someone amazing who changes my life or, you know, yeah. even when I was a waitress, like a decade ago, I'd be, you know, maybe tonight my life will He'll change. He'll walk in and yeah, sit something. at my table. <laughs> and I thought, if you make a decision that that's not on your agenda, I, I just read that part of it and I thought... Imagine all that time and energy I could have had back to pour into art. Yes. It's interesting to write about all these women that are still so tied to love mm -hmm. and wanting the attentions of a man while you yourself really did disentangle yourself mm -hmm. from that need and want. It's interesting because this, this essay is coming up a lot now. So 
It's radically yeah. fabulous. Well, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. The first thing I'll say is it feels so good to give up on love in that way. And of course, I'm not saying if, if some wonderful person walked into my life and said, no, sorry, I don't do love anymore. I mean, that's not yeah. the point. The point is, as you say, I'm living my life and I'm engaging with people in the situations that I come across naturally and authentically and not worrying about whether or not I meet someone. In fact, I think back to being out with a couple of girlfriends who are younger than me, so there's maybe a little bit more urgency than than I feel at my age. And I was just so conscious of our energy. Like the, the tension that they felt was just emanating that, you know, I want to meet somebody. I want to feel like people are looking at me and that I'm attractive. And I just felt loose, you know? <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm just here. I'm just existing I mean, in that need for connection, there's self-criticism and there's discomfort in your own body and there's missing out on whatever it is that's happening around you that could be just as meaningful as meeting the love of your life. That's the first piece. And as far as the book goes, I feel like part of what I wanted to do is give each of these women their moment to decide whether they're going to continue right? This is the moment I'm inviting you to liberate yourself or shift the dynamics of this relationship with circus. Are you going to stick with it? And if so, what are you going to do to position yourself more comfortably, to, to create a dynamic that's respectful and fair? Or are you going to, you know, move on? Some of the women make choices that readers may consider wise and liberating, and others may consider frustrating, because that's life, right? I mean, if I wrote a book where every woman goes, you're out of here, that would not be, you know, an accurate representation of human life. But that's what I wanted to do. And sure, as I was disentangling myself from that intense need for partnership and allowing life to just be whatever it was going to be, it made it in some ways, easier to write these women's stories because I felt like their friend. And rather than just giving them advice on this is what you should do, I gave them opportunities, right, to make different choices. Some of them listened to me, some of them didn't, but that's, that's how that sort of played out in the book. Well, one of my favorite parts in the book is a chapter about Carmen. Mm -hmm. And I thought, <laughs> yes, here we go. Because so often, you know, circus is obviously very handsome. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with that talent, mm -hmm. being a trumpeter and mm -hmm. the way musicians look and feel. Yes. And I think it's always so appealing when someone is lost in their craft, in their art, mm -hmm. you know, we all want a part of that and we want someone to be as lost with us as they yes. could be, yeah. which probably Absolutely. never quite matches up maybe yeah. for a moment. Can you describe this fabulous moment where mm. this very accomplished, beautiful woman, Carmen, bumps into mm -hmm. her old flame mm -hmm. circus? Sure. You know, it's interesting. I, I told you about the the essay, Why Jazz, that, that came out today in LitHub. A lot of people have asked me why he plays jazz. And I think in part because people don't realize 
people still play jazz. People still listen to jazz. But you've nailed it. What you said is exactly one of the reasons that I, I chose jazz is because it's so engaging. It's, you know, they're just experiencing the music in their bodies. It's incredible to watch. You're connecting on so many different levels as you're watching. So one of the things that I wanted to play around with is, you know, each of these women have to find something uniquely interesting about circus, right? If every woman likes him for the same reason and has the same motive behind engaging with him, it's not interesting, right? You're basically just telling the same story over and over from 10 different perspectives. So I really had to think about, okay, what does Carmen see in him? What does Maggie see in him? What does Pia get out of the relationship? And so it felt accurate or, or more authentic to me that some of the women don't necessarily feel that strongly about him, that they're not necessarily deeply connected and invested at the gut level. I also thought it would be fun to kind of play with this idea that I think happens a lot of going back to relationships or reconnecting with someone that you had a certain experience of love with and coming to find out that they weren't experiencing it that way. I wanted to do that to Circus. So Carmen is somebody that he sort of thinks of as his first love. And I've met a lot of men, I'm actually related to one, who have told me, you fall in love once, men fall in love once, and if it doesn't go well, that's it, right? And so I kind of wanted to play with that. And that's Carmen for Circus, his first love. So in the first chapter, Maggie, who's kind of his most beloved bedmate, tells him she's pregnant and he leaves her and moves forward in relationships and connecting and reconnecting with the other women in his life. So he's already been on that path a little bit by the time he runs into Carmen. And so I thought it would be interesting to see what happens to him when he connects with someone who he thinks is his great love and she sees it differently. Because part of what's happening in this book is, yes, each woman has her trajectory. She has her arc. But then Circus also has an arc. What is he going to do? You know, what decision is he going to make? How is he going to evolve after this initial moment with Maggie and this pregnancy? And so Carmen is a part of that. So she's going to be one of those women in the book who doesn't think he's the cat's meow, who doesn't think he's the greatest thing. So how is that going to change him? How is that going to affect his his journey? And how are we as readers going to understand him differently when we come across women who don't think he's the end-all be-all? Well, it's also great to put someone in their place. There's nothing better than, isn't it, coming across someone mm -hmm. who you thought you'd you'd really like, but you'd also kind of done all the right things yes. and they hadn't broken up with you kindly or yes. properly and you just and then with those years mm -hmm. you just start to realize what an idiot they were yeah and arrogant not that smart right. not that talented oh god yes and you've kind of moved on <laughs> yeah. so much and then you get an opportunity to see them there was just a line that I loved where Carmen says oh let me just I'll be paraphrasing it when she says oh you know, I live in London now and I run my own dance company. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I live with my husband in London. Mm -hmm. You know, that was after Paris and mm -hmm. after New York mm -hmm. and after, and I thought, yes. Yeah. I'm like, and I, it was a great balance because yeah. I felt at that point in the novel I needed, I was like, wait a second. Right. This guy, right. he can't be all that. Right. You talk about that, the overarching arc yeah. of Circus's trajectory, and I needed that then. Great. I'm glad so to hear it. Thank you. You're welcome. You're very welcome. And you know, I love your reading of Carmen because that's how I saw her. So I imagine their relationship, that she was really into him at the time. Yeah, she was like you are in yeah, college. exactly. And you think you're deeply in love and you're connecting you know, at levels that you didn't even know were, were possible and you're giving your all and this person is not capable of receiving it. And then just as you said, you grow up and you realize, what was I thinking? That guy's not that interesting or smart or talented or intense. But then as you sort of move forward, very often that person, and of course it's not only men, that person, whoever it was, might still think of you as like, you're the one who got away because of how much you were giving of them and how spectacular you were, right? And that's how I see Carmen. She's spectacular. And she went on to a very spectacular life, and he didn't really. So it is a really interesting moment. And I think that in some ways she probably does have some satisfaction in kind of saying, so are you still uh, yeah, not thinking what are you about doing yeah, now yeah. compared to my very exciting dynamic life? But I also feel like she really means it when she says, "I don't, I don't really see it that way. Uh, that's not how I. That's not how I see things." So again, I, I didn't want to write a book where this jerk gets his comeuppance. Right? That didn't seem fair. It didn't seem very compelling. But I did want him to be confronted with the consequences in the lives of the women that he has touched, and to. And sometimes those consequences aren't going to feel good for him, but hopefully they do aid him in his evolution and as he decides what he's going to do about what he sees as a problem in his life, which is Maggie being pregnant. There's just something wonderful about when Carmen doesn't look back. You mm -hmm. know when people mm -hmm. part mm -hmm. yes. and there's the look back right. or the not look back. But I know in my own life, I think I've walked off yeah. and held that head yes. straight yeah. and not looked back and just gone, and off I go. Right. And it's there's such satisfaction in that. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had some moments like that too where I've, you know – and one of the reasons that I wrote this book, and, and I think about this a lot on a lot of different aspects of our lives, is if we knew how we impacted each other. I mean, I've we've all, every person on the planet has probably had a heartbreak that is so devastating that you don't think you're going to survive, right? And you're just sitting in your room, sobbing your eyes out, your gut's wrenched. And I have the thought, like, if he knew <laughs> that this is what was happening to me right now because of our relationship. Would he behave differently? Would he have behaved differently? And that was one of the things that I thought about when I when I wrote this book. And so I, I think that there is that satisfaction too if you had that kind of heartbreak or you've been mistreated by someone that you cared about and you tried to love. There is some satisfaction in that walking away. And there is that moment of, you know, I will not turn back. Maybe I want to, but I don't. I won't. Or 
I don't want to turn back. And so I, I wanted to have one of those moments. One of the ones that I had was somebody that I, I did like a lot. And like you said, as years passed, it was like, who was that guy? Like, why was I even that into him? I have no idea who he is, really. But when we parted, I looked back. And not only did he not look back, he was gone. Like, he had evaporated. <laughs> And I was like, well, I guess that's a sign that that's definitely over. So I like that moment, too, with, with Carmen. And I think it's a gut punch to, to Circus. And he needs some gut punches. And not, again, that I'm seeking some kind of punishment for this character, but more, you know, I want him to grow. I love Circus. I actually, I get him. I understand him. I care about him. I wanted to treat him fairly. I wanted to give him dimension and also invite him to evolve. Mm, reading the book definitely made me think of how I treated people mm -hmm. in relationships, you know, how I'd ended things mm -hmm. and hoping that I had done it in a kind way. It does matter. It does yes. matter. How we yeah. treat one another does yes. matter. Mm -hmm. I want to know what were you listening to when you wrote this book? So it's interesting. I was listening to every kind of music, and I believe we're going to put together a Spotify list. Oh, excellent. Yeah, that, I mean, I've finished it. I think we're, I mean, I think we're doing it. When it's going to be in the world, I'm not sure. And initially, we were thinking of doing, the publisher and I were thinking of doing just a jazz playlist. So for sure, I was listening to a lot of jazz. I really like, I'm not going to surprise anybody with like some obscure jazz reference, you know, Coltrane, Mingus, Thelonious Monk, of course, Miles Davis. I was listening to a lot of that. And then I listened to jazz musicians that I think Circus liked, which included all of those guys, as well as Lee Morgan, Charlie Parker. But what helps me when I write, regardless of the subject matter, like I'm working on the next novel, there are no musicians in it, but I listen to music that either I think the characters would like or music that to me just sounds like them. I'm not a musician, but music and sound just really affects me. And so, for instance, with Pia, Circus's ex-wife, she listens to like 90s songstresses like Tori Amos and the Cranberries and Jewel. And so I would listen to that music when I wrote her character. And then characters like, well, Peach, who's a bartender who Circus connects with, she's really into like guitars. So I was listening to a lot of the Black Keys. I felt like she just, she loves the Black Keys. And of course, there's there's probably a gap in my knowledge, right? Because I know, in fact, when I sent the playlist to my publishers, like a lot of these are sort of older. There's not a lot of contemporary stuff here, which probably speaks a little bit more to my yeah, but that's limitations, but it's, but it's the characters. So I, I really listened to music that I think they liked. And then I also like uh, my students at Berkeley, the Berkeley College of Music told me that it's down tempo. I didn't know that, but my students told me that. So that's music like zero seven and the sort of acid jazz chill, you know, channel on Spotify. And like I said, there would be music that just sounded like the characters, whether or not they would like it didn't necessarily factor in. So I'm going to ask my last question, which is, what lights you up? 
Oh my gosh. Could be anything. What lights me up? Yeah. I guess the first thing that's coming to mind is other people's creativity. When I need to feel alive, I go to a museum, I go to a gallery, I go to a concert, I go to a film. I get so excited by the human spirit as it expresses itself in art. It really is satisfying to me. And like I said, even when there are days that I'm not necessarily feeling any in, in need of any kind of emotional shift, if I go to a museum, if I go to a gallery, if I, you know, hear a good piece of music, just my heart opens up. But then also I was just talking to a friend who is is visiting Los Angeles from the East Coast and we talked about you know, I've now, now I live by Griffith Park and being able to take a hike, being able to go to the beach on the other side of town, being in nature, right? And really good conversation. In fact, you know, going back to, to romance, I did go on a date. Well, I've been on a few dates, not just one, but even though I've given up on love, when yeah. it walks into my life, I say, all right, we'll give it a shot. And I was out with somebody and realized, wow, I really like conversation because we're not having one. <laughs> and you're making me realize how important and how exciting it is. And I just feel so good when I'm having a really interesting, engaged conversation with another human being and learning about who that person is and what makes them tick. That's a beautiful yeah. answer. I want to just follow on that. Is there a visual artist mm -hmm. that you return to. Hmm. There's definitely artists that I return to. Yeah. I love the work of Richard Diepenkorn, hmm. who's a California artist okay. from the, I think the, like his primary years were the 50s, 60s, and 70s. He does a lot of figurative work, but mm -hmm. he's known for his abstractions of mm -hmm. kind of Ocean Park, mm -hmm. the, yeah. the kind of undulations of the road down towards the water. And I always just go to a book like that and mm -hmm. it calms me down so much. You know, I guess what I would answer is I am not as learned about visual arts. And so I'm sort of the person who kind of enters the gallery or museum and just lets it wash over me. I think it's really amusing to talk about art as a creative person and coming up against your limitations because I feel like I can talk about writing until I'm blue in the face. I also feel like I can speak fairly intelligently about music and and maybe even film, but I'm just a very limited sort of appreciator of the visual arts. Like I'll stand in some front of something and be like, I really like the colors. It's pretty, you know, but it's still impacting me. I just moved to Los Feliz, and so I'm putting up art on my walls. And I like the German Impressionists. I don't know why. I mean, I did live in, in Germany for a while, but I remember going to an exhibition at one of the museums at Harvard when I lived in Boston, and I walked through, and it's like, every single thing in here I love. I don't know what that says about me. And I also have a just European culture I do like a lot of. So that's part of it. I have a Medigliani on my wall, you know, one of the nudes. Mm. And uh, Kandinsky I have on my wall, although that's old. I've had that for a long time. I might want to replace it. But I like figures. I like people. I had a roommate years ago. I moved into her apartment and 
she just had a lot of like abstract, blocky art on the walls. And when I took over, I was like, people, I need people, I need color, I need figures, I need bodies. Mm, I'm with you on yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Laura, thank you so much. Thank what you. What a beautiful morning. Yes, this is a great way to spend a morning. Oh, yeah, I'll do this. I'll come over every every Tuesday. Exactly. <laughs> Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.